you know, at the tail end of his career, there's always a doubt with him, isn't there? We're never sure, even though he says, I want to stay here forever, you're just never sure with the driver's motivation. Where it was just a couple of years ago, where it looked like Mercedes were unbeatable, and now look who's unbeatable now, you know, it's Red Bull. And... Does that even mean, does that mean anything to you guys? Your Mount Rushmore yeah, um, um, designers, yeah, engineers? We was... don't have, we don't yeah, have a Mount yeah. Rushmore in the UK, I really want one. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't. <laughs> Hi, hi, hi. Welcome to Unlapped. Katie George, Nate Saunders, and Lawrence Edmondson, who is in Australia ahead of this week's Grand Prix. Lawrence, how's Melbourne treating you? Yeah, pretty good. Um, I'm here on, it's Thursday morning here. Uh, I'm feeling a bit worse for wear because uh, the jet lag hit me last night. Woke up at about 3.30, 4am. Haven't gone back to sleep since, but I have got coffee. And if Melbourne does one thing really well, it's really good coffee. So um, yeah, I'm feeling like very prepared and um, it should be, a, should be a good weekend. Can you confirm or deny the coffee, Nate? So I've never been to Melbourne, but I can... You haven't? Uh, no, not for the race. It's one, it's one of the few ones I've not done. But I can confirm okay. the coffee thing because every single journalist I, I follow <laughs> on Instagram who is out there has shared a picture of their coffee. So it must be good. And that doesn't happen other places. So um, yeah, I get... Usually for this weekend, I get proper FOMO, but I'm actually at a wedding later this week, so I'm missing okay. most of it. So, um, yeah, it's but yeah, it looks like a mega, mega place. And uh, yeah, just a great place to go racing. So was it the wedding that kept you out or do you guys arm wrestle for which Grand Prix you get to actually attend? Yeah, we arm wrestle. Lawrence wins every <laughs> time, which you wouldn't think looking at us, but he's, yeah, he's, yeah, he's, I, I don't that's a punch. <laughs> Lawrence, because of the drastic time difference, and obviously I know it's different for you guys being in London as compared to the United States. But when do drivers and teams usually go to Melbourne to get ready for the Grand Prix? Yeah, definitely a bit earlier. Um, most people will head out the weekend before, um, okay. but it takes from Europe. You lose a day getting here. So, you know, I took off on Sunday evening. I didn't get here till Tuesday morning. Um, and uh, it was quite interesting following some of the drivers. Uh, Carlos Sainz did his uh, mm. view on how to get over jet lag and when to sleep and when not to and what to do in the lounge in between uh, your first flight from London to Dubai and your second flight from Dubai to Australia. And that's all well and good, but he also posted a picture from first class, which I think makes the biggest difference. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Have, you have a bed that you can lie flat on versus being one of three people on like, you know, a window row. Uh, it makes a massive difference. So um, yeah, I, I did it the hardcore way. I did it economy. So um, yeah, <laughs> I'm probably paying the price a little bit this morning, but um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's funny, like you get into the paddock and a lot of your conversations should start with like, how was your sleep? Have you had mm -hmm. some coffee? You know, all that kind of stuff. So um, it's good. But uh, Valtteri Bottas actually like really plugged into this. Um, he loves it out here. He's got an uh, Australian girlfriend and um, he's uh, tied up with a local roastery, coffee roastery. And they do just the most amazing coffee, most amazing brunches. So I got there on um, Tuesday, my first morning, cool. and uh, had some of his coffee, which was very, very good. That's, That's awesome. the stuff I saw all over Instagram was the was the Bottas stuff. On the jet lag, I, I totally agree. If I was if I was Sainz's like lead lead mechanic or something, I'd be like, dude, I did, I definitely Chill. couldn't follow. Yeah, I couldn't follow yeah. that to the letter. I did hear last year some teams say that logistically, some teams have even worked out like which side of the plane is best for their for their um, mechanics to sleep on because they they work out where the sun's going to be, where the glare's going to be, what Wild. time they're going to get woken up by stuff. So a lot actually goes into this logistical kind of planning of stuff. It's it's a fascinating deep dive I've always wanted to do because there's so many little things like little gains you can make and little areas where you can you can actually not sleep for a whole flight and then suddenly you know it takes you three days maybe to recover. So pretty interesting how they do that and you kind of you kind of forget that that's a factor, right? When 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 you watch a race, you don't think these guys are a little bit jet lagged still. Yeah, it's fascinating. Oh, so cool. Well, Lawrence, I hope that you are well rested by race day. I think that should be plenty of time. Let's dive into some of the newsworthy comments that have been made as of late. We'll start with Mercedes and team boss Toto Wolf, who recently has said that he thinks the lag, not jet lag, but the lag between Mercedes and Red Bull is probably between six and 12 months because that's the time it really took for us to figure out what was actually happening with our 2022 car. I would ask the two of you, do you think that that's a fair gauge six to 12 months off of Red Bull who certainly everybody is chasing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think everyone is about six to 12 months off of Red Bull. Uh, some teams even more just because of the tools they have to try and close the gap. So um, I think what Toto was really referring to was the fact that for the first half of last year, so this period last year, the team was struggling with the porpoising, the bouncing that was so obvious. The drivers talked about it so much. 
And until they had that solved, they couldn't really add any performance to the car because every time they tried to add performance to the car, the porpoising just got worse. So until they understood that, there was nothing they could really do. So they lost six months of potential development direction just in terms of adding pure performance downforce onto the car just because they were fixing one specific problem. Red Bull never really had that. They kind of came in and, you know, they had a few issues with bouncing. You could see, like, when they went for more extreme setups, they were bouncing a little bit, but it was never as bad as Mercedes. And, you know, it, it never took away from the performance of the car like it did for Mercedes. So um, I think that's absolutely accurate. And then we've, you know, we, we've discussed this. It's been a big topic at the start of this year that um, Mercedes are going to have to change their car concept. They've decided on that. They they came up with an idea um, under the new regulations that came in the start of last year. Everyone was... Uh, blinds what everyone else was doing and they got to the first race and they realized their car looked very different to everyone else's now that can be a good thing if you get it right but obviously if you don't get it right and if you're in the position they are now 0.6 seconds in qualifying off red bull and even more in the race then uh at some point you've got to decide right do we continue on this avenue of development that is getting us further and further away from red bull or do we cut our losses and try something different try and look at how red bull are creating the performance and go with that so that's the position they're in and um yeah i don't think it's an exaggeration at all to say six to 12 months because um while i th i feel like there are still going to be tracks where the mercedes is going to be quick this year and they could actually mm -hmm. challenge for victories at some races to do what they intend to do, which is go challenging for titles, they're going to need a bit of a reset on this car. And I can't really see that happening this year. I can't see them challenging for a title this year. And if they do it next year, they've done a remarkable job to turn it around. But you can see them possibly winning a race this year? I think so, yeah. If you look at where the car is quick, um, low-speed corners is pretty good. Uh, it's high-speed. Um, you know, one of the big problems it had last year was that it was way down on top speed and uh, straight line performance compared to the Red Bull. They seem to have made up some of that gap. So I don't know. I mean, if I was going to pick one right now, it's quite hard to say because we're still learning about these cars. But somewhere like Monza might be good. Uh, but then conversely, somewhere like Monaco, where it's all mainly low speed corners, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there'll be occasions where uh, they can they can hook it up a bit when they start to learn a bit more about the car. We saw some big steps on George Russell's side from Bahrain to Saudi Arabia in terms of extracting performance from the car. I'm sure Lewis will learn from that as well and, and make similar gains. So I think they'll get to a point where, you know, maybe a bit like Brazil last year, Brazil could be actually another track where that car's good, um, where they just win the occasional race. But like we said before, that's not enough. They needed to be, you know, certainly within a few temps of Red Bull at this stage of the season and comfortable that they are going to catch up and they don't have any of that at the moment. So that's that's the problem they're facing. Formula One always provides stars, certainly, but it also provides rivalries. And I think one of the greatest rivalries that we've seen is obviously between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. So with this gauge, six to 12 months, Nate, what does this mean for Formula One? I mean, are we going to see any battles this season? Are we even going to see any battles between the two possibly next season? Or are we that far off? Yeah, I think it might be next season for anything legitimate. I mean, like Lawrence said, there could be places where Lewis is is up mm. there. But I mean, remember what happened last year? We had a few kind of tantalizing moments where Lewis and Max seemed to be about to share the same portion of track. You know, we had it at Zandvoort. We had it a few places. Then Brazil, we got that glimpse where they did actually come together. They did collide. So we've we've had glimpses of it. And I feel like we'll get that again. But yeah, the intensity of 21, it feels like that's at least a year away and maybe, maybe even longer. Because I think, to be honest with you, I think that... We'll never get that again in the exact same way because Russell's been so good. Russell has kind of emerged in such a good way. So if Mercedes does kind of put itself in this position where it can challenge for a title again, suddenly the dynamic isn't Max v. Lewis in that situation. I think it's suddenly Max v. Lewis v. George. And again, that throws in a whole, you know, a whole different element to it. So um, I'm confident that we'll see Mercedes back there at some point. I think they're too good of a team to not get back there. But yeah, you know, it, it, anytime soon seems seems quite unlikely. And yeah, I mean, with Lewis, the question is always, will he still be racing in Formula One when that happens? Because obviously, you know, he's he's you know at the tail end of his career. There's always a doubt with him, isn't there? We're never sure, even though he says, I want to stay here forever. You're just never sure with the driver's motivation. Um, and he's gone from being in a very dominant position to one where he's struggling a bit more. You wonder what kind of toll that takes on you. It's the opposite of what Fernando Alonso had, where he was like, well things aren't going my way. I'm just going to keep changing teams until I get something good. Mm -hmm. And finally he's landed in a great position and everyone's delighted about it. But Lewis is coming from the other situation. So we'll see. I think these next few races are going to be really interesting. So I think everybody's going into them looking at how Lewis responds to the situation and, you know, will the frustration that we saw in Bahrain, was that just a track specific thing with him? Is that going to actually intensify? Because if that does intensify, 
the question of whether Lewis stays long term, I think is a much more relevant one than it is maybe now. For sure. And something else that made some headlines and something to keep an eye on moving forward is that Red Bull's chief technical officer, Adrian Newey's contract is reportedly up for renewal this year. Newey had signed with Red Bull to become their technical operation leader from McLaren back in 2005. So obviously he is a large portion of the successes that we've seen at Red Bull throughout what, almost two decades. Mm. If you were a betting man, Lawrence, Nate, would you say that he renews? He stays at Red Bull. Could somebody entice him away to a new team? Could we see him retire? I believe he's mid sixties at this point. What say you? Yeah, um, I, I think he's got everything he, he wants at Red Bull and that's uh, been the case. So there was a time, uh, it must've been in around 2015, 2016, basically when Mercedes were dominating and the performance of the Mercedes engine versus the Renault engine that Red Bull were using was, there was such a big gap in Mercedes favor that I think Adrian got to the point where he felt no matter what he did with the car, it was never going to make the difference. And he seemed to fall out of love a bit with F1 in that period. And so he went off and worked on a few different projects. He did America's Cup. Um, he uh, They also um, tied up with Aston Martin uh, uh, around kind of 2017, 18. And he worked on the Aston Martin Valkyrie, which is one of the most amazing road cars, if not the most amazing road car out there at the moment. And um, so he's, he's always had this. Um, they've always given him this flexibility to go and pursue these occasional passion projects away from F1. So that he can come back to it when he's when they need him most, and they needed him certainly uh, coming into this new regulation set and look at it with you know um, a fresh pair of eyes and, and not feeling completely weighed down by F one. So I'm not sure another team would really offer that flexibility to him uh, and and all the rest of it. And also he's he's done exactly what you know Adrian knew he does best at the moment. He's designed a car that is so much faster than everyone else. Um, that it's almost impossible for everyone to catch up. And uh, I'm sure there's a huge amount of satisfaction from that. But also um, seeing what he's done in the past, I feel like there's still a huge amount that he'll want to get out of it. You know, he won't be happy with just you know winning by 30 seconds. He'll want to be winning by 40 <laughs> seconds, 50 seconds. And if he <laughs> believes there's scope within these regulations to be able to you know continue to add performance, continue to come up with in innovative ideas, stuff that's still compelling for him uh, as an engineer then I think he'll do it um, but I suppose what, what we may see is that if he is negotiating a new contract he may negotiate a new a few things into it that he'd like to do with his spare time he might look to have more spare time and you know Red Bull and Adrian himself have pointed out again and again and again that while Adrian does oversee you know the the concept of the car you know he does work on some specific parts of it there's a huge team working there um, uh, below him and kind of you know contributing ideas and coming up with uh, parts of the car that make it go incredibly fast that are not necessarily coming directly from Adrian. So um, they've made a big effort to make sure that everyone there is inspired by Adrian, but not entirely reliant on him. So sure. I could see a situation where, you know, if, if he feels like there's not much of an engineering challenge left in, in these new set of regulations, I kind of doubt that's the case. But if he does feel that way, then maybe step back for a couple of years, come back if he needs to be a consultant. There's so many options, but what I can't really see is him going to another team just because he is so, rooted in 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 Red Bull and so much a part of it. And him and Christian uh, Horner, who's the team principal at Red Bull, have really worked so hard together to, to get that team to where it is. And also to come back from where it was just a couple of years ago, where it looked like Mercedes were unbeatable. And now look who's unbeatable now. You know, it's Red Bull. And, and I think Adrian, I imagine, will derive a huge amount of satisfaction from that and will probably want to continue to be a part of that. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.
is he one of the greatest, if not the greatest designer engineer in F1 history? Yeah, I think so. I think it's difficult to, so, I mean, in the modern era, there's no one even close. I mean, you know, Lawrence mentioned there that he he joined uh, from McLaren in 2005. I can actually remember reading the Autosport magazine when they kind of announced that that move was happening. And I was like, I was like, what? Because at the time, Red Bull was like, an, you know, it was just a drinks company. We did not associate it with racing, you know, and he had had, knew his name even then, even in 2005, was legendary. You know, the, the, just the, the mere suggestion that Nui had, had designed a car meant, hey, this car's going to be quick. You know, he, he had he had title successes at Williams, at McLaren. He'd had success before then, obviously, as well. So when he went to Red Bull, it was kind of like, oh, okay. It was kind of the first time in my head that I was like, well, they must be taking Formula One pretty seriously if they've got this guy in. And he's kind of married up to the idea that they could also win as well. Like, it's a two-way street, isn't it? So, and just on that on that point, to add, I agree with everything Lawrence said. At Red Bull, Nui's been able to kind of build the culture from the ground up. Um, and, you know, they win in a certain way. They operate in a certain way. And I think that Ferrari, obviously, there's question marks around what that place is like behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. When you're Nui's age, I don't see that being an appealing proposition, going to a place that's kind of in flux. There's kind of all these moving parts. There's all this yeah. politics to it. At Red Bull, Nui's kind of part of the furniture. He knows, you know, he knows what everything's like there. You know, there's no surprises at Red Bull for him. He knows Horner so well. He knows the team so well. So I can't see it happening. I mean, it would it would take a pretty monumental bid from Ferrari anyway, I think, to turn his head. But he'd probably just look at yeah. it and think, to be honest, I don't need this at this point in my life. So, yeah, I think that's two pretty comprehensive no's, sadly. <laughs> but we've poured, <laughs> poured quite a lot of water on that. Lawrence, would you agree? Would he be in your Mount Rushmore? What does that even mean? Does that mean anything to you guys? Your Mount Rushmore yeah, um, of designers, yeah, engineers? We was... don't have we don't yeah, have a Mount Rushmore in the UK. I really want one. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> I do. I I, uh, I mention it in articles all the time. A yeah, vacation you want to go on when you're oh. 12 years old? Pack the car and go to Mount Rushmore and look at rocks, and then apparently leave. much smaller in real life as well. When you get there. Yes. Apparently everyone's super underwhelmed. They get there and they're like, wait, is that is that it? And they realize very clever camera work has made it look huge. Yeah. If you're listening and it's on your bucket list, you should just take, yeah, it, take off. it off. Just look at it on the <laughs> internet. Okay. So Lawrence, you do obviously get the reference. He would be on your Mount yeah. Rushmore. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, he'd be up there probably in the George Washington position. Um, but you got <laughs> an engineer. So I mean, uh, Colin Chapman would definitely be uh, a key figure on there. He was... Um, basically the founder of uh of lotus and uh works on so many revolutionary ideas gordon murray is another one uh who was responsible for um the most well was part of the team that created most the most dominant car ever in formula One history which is obviously a record that um rebels going out after and that was the mclaren in 1988 won 15 or 16 races so um yeah there'd, there'd be a few, few few big names up there but undoubtedly you'd have adrian newey up there as well yeah Adrian Newey is George Washington. I love that. That's a yeah. great, that's a great, great analogy. <laughs> um, we're sticking to it. You heard it first on Unlapped. Um, the F1 boss, Stefano Domenicale, uh, continues to voice that he is not, he were not a fan of free practice. This is also something that uh, hit the airwaves and has been newsworthy this week. He says, well, it's extremely useful, obviously, to the team engineers. It's not something that the public enjoys. So he would support canceling free practice. Does F1 need another format change? It's a strange one, isn't it? Because I think when we work in Formula One, we get very cynical about practice. I mean, I've watched far too many practice sessions in my life that now I, you know, I tried to work out how many practice sessions I would have watched in my time covering Formula One. And yeah, my my, my conclusion was it's too many. We don't need we don't need a number on it. <laughs> um and I think that what's what's really surprising to me, to be honest with you, is that it's become a televised event and it's become something that a lot of fans really do seem to enjoy. They seem to enjoy getting there on a Friday, turning the TV on and watching two hours of practice, which when I was growing up was very different. I used to like to tune in at qualifying. You'd see the, you'd, you'd know kind of what had happened over practice, but really you started with the competitive session. I think the bigger question that F1 has at the moment, and this is actually quite an interesting one, given where we are with Netflix and with the, the boom of popularity, is what the motivations are behind this. So this statement seems to be that Formula One wants to make practice sessions more meaningful, but by the very nature of practice, they're not really meaningful in the in the sense of being competitive. You know, they're very helpful for the teams. They're very meaningful for the guys that are making those cars go fast, you know, and and, and be reliable, be efficient, et cetera. But from a, from a viewing perspective, so one thing I was told is that one of the discussions that came up is, do we find a way to 
to award points at the end of it, even if there's small points. And you think, well, how does that benefit the overall integrity of the season if it just ends up that Red Bull this season gets 10 more points every Friday than everybody else? You know, how do you how do you do it? How do you make it fair? Um, and then, I mean, the counter argument to practice is that it does seem that some of the most entertaining races we've had in previous seasons has been when there's limited running on Fridays and on the Saturday morning session. You know, teams come into qualifying with less information, less data. They maybe don't have their setups down how they want it. You know, they don't understand the tires as well. And there is a bit of a question mark over strategies. And they go into the race maybe feeling a little bit under-equipped. You know, these cars are so reliable now. Or at least, well, this year they've, they've there's been some that haven't been so reliable. But generally speaking, compared to a few years ago, they're massively reliable. So maybe taking practice away and having it a bit more that you turn up and you pretty much start competitive sessions straight away that I could I could really get behind. I think that that would really benefit the spectacle. But if it's a case of we're going to do that by making points in practice and making practice really gimmicky, I think that that's a step in the wrong direction for Formula One. So if if the idea is let's make the sessions, the weekends more competitive by slimming down practice, giving the teams less time to work on their cars and making you know adding to the kind of unexpected factor, then I'm all for it. But I think from what we've heard from Formula One, some of the discussions going on with the teams does seem like there's a few gimmicks flying around. And I think that F1 fans pretty pretty consistently have rejected gimmicks whenever they've been thrown in. I mean, even sprint races, you know, I, I really like the sprint race format, but a lot of fans still don't really care mm. for that too much. So it's got a, it's it's an interesting topic. And I just hope we don't end up with some kind of half-hearted system where there's points at some practice sessions and the teams kind of don't really know what to make of it. Uh, and especially if it's hard to explain, that's <laughs> that's always the worst thing as a journalist is when they make something that's like, right, this is now, it takes like five minutes to explain this thing. So, so we'll see. But I think there's, there's definitely, definitely legs to it. I definitely think they can make the weekends kind of mean more, um, you know, across what they do, but they have to be really careful, I think, not to kind of ruin the integrity of what we have so far. Yeah, because you can imagine if a championship is decided in a practice session and yeah. you know, you're kind of going practice. into the weekend knowing knowing that the title could be decided that weekend and you go and turn on qualifying thinking that's the first time that it's actually worth watching anything. <laughs> and you get told, oh, by the way, Max Verstappen won it yesterday uh, by topping FP1. It's just like... Because <laughs> he did the fastest time on the hard tyres in practice and he got five points yeah, for that. Yeah, so, I mean, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to be too critical about it without knowing exactly what's being planned. And it seems some of the messaging in Stefano's quotes was either taken out of context or it wasn't exactly what he meant to say he wasn't just saying let's strip uh free practices from from all races because for the people that attend races free practices are, are, are actually quite good i mean yeah. um it wasn't that long ago that there was uh three hours of free practice on a friday and i know uh, from talking to people that go and watch in the grandstands that um now they've cut that to just two hours two one hour sessions rather than two one and a half hour sessions uh people have lost you know track time they've lost time just seeing the cars on track and when you go to race weekend obviously the thing you're really excited about is watching the race or you know maybe the final se uh, seconds of qualifying but in terms of you know just that wow factor god the cars are on track look how amazing they look you know that happens on on the friday so i think there needs to be a balance between uh why we have practice in the first place um and who's it serving and then also just kind of realizing that it's okay if the only things that are worth tuning in for are qualifying and the race and maybe a sprint race every now and again it doesn't have to be that every single time the cars are on track you know it's some kind of spectacle or whatever because um you know i think they, they still serve a purpose for the people that are there and when we have 23 races going on 25 do we really need more yeah. you know more stuff to be tuning into do we really need more stuff to be to be focusing on like nate said more potential confusion in uh in how how a system works i mean i've tune into NASCAR every now and again I always have to remind myself of the rules around the stages and that and then the playoff and all that kind of stuff and you know sometimes just keeping it simpler is actually far more attractive to uh to casual fans than trying to turn everything into a competitive session I'd compare it a little bit to the Pro Bowl in the NFL and what a joke that's become because obviously you had something that was pretty cool as a, mm -hmm. as a concept you know the best players from either team obviously the massive differences between the two but the reason the pro board doesn't work is because players at that point in the season aren't going 100% into tackles into everything and now mm. it's basically become like flag football hasn't it it's basically a complete joke like I, I see clips position. Yeah. yeah I just see Skills clips camp. of it and I'm just like is this really like just let these guys go on holiday a week early like why are they <laughs> why are they doing this like just so humiliating and it's just turned into a complete joke of an event and I feel like 
one thing I saw when we when we were in testing, you know, we I've done testing since 2015, you know, on location. Testing's pretty boring by by its very nature. You know, it's long sessions. The teams are out. They don't really give you any information. You know, they're not telling you what fuels in the car and stuff. And lots of fans are saying this is this year. We're like, this is so boring. They need to make this more entertaining. And I just thought, well, no, like you've decided to tune into a test session. Like, what did you yeah. expect? You know, That's if I, on if you. I, yeah, if I if they said we're going to stream the Tampa Bay Buccaneers training camp and I watched it and I was like, this isn't very entertaining. The only person to blame there is me <laughs> because it's like, what do you expect? You know? So I think that there has to be some realism to this. You know, there's obviously a lot it's of fair. new fans coming to formula one who want to see as much of it as they can. And that's great. But yeah, they, I think sometimes watching less of something makes it more enjoyable, you know, um, to go back to the NFL, you know, if the NFL was on for 32 weeks of the year, I think people's appetite for it would be a lot less. You know, lose its luster. Yeah, exactly. So I think that Lawrence is right. You know, when you have this many races, the idea of of doing more in those weekends is just nuts. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, Stefano was just was just caught unawares with that interview because it did seem it did seem like he was kind of a microphone was just put in front of him and he kind of spoke. And obviously, English isn't his first language, so sometimes no. things come out a bit differently. So, um, yeah, we'll see. Watch this space, but hopefully, that's um, something that just kind of dies away over the next couple of weeks. Well, regardless of format, people are doing their damnedest to get involved in Formula One in the coming future. And the latest report was that former British American racing founder, Craig Pollock, has confirmed that he's looking to enter Formula One with a 50% male, 50% female team called Formula Equal. I would just like to state, I think that there's a less confusing way to describe that. You could just say you want a Formula One team with a male and female driver, but regardless, <laughs> he is trying to get involved and present opportunities to females in the sport. You know, what did you make of this initial idea and report, Nate? Yeah, I think it's a really cool idea. And I think that mm -hmm. there's a lot to it actually to like, you know, one is the Craig Pollock is behind it. He, he brings a certain amount of pedigree. He likes to do things 50-50 as well. When BAR introduced <laughs> their car in 1999, it actually had, it ended up with a split livery. They tried to have two different car designs. The FIA said, you can't do that. So it basically had this design that had a zip down the middle of it and it had one livery on one side and one on the other. Okay. So not not linked to this, but I just thought it was a nice 50-50 <laughs> comment. Um, it's, it's interesting as well, because I think that, um, I mean, first of all, I think we saw at the start of the year, there is almost a checklist of things that prospective teams for this, you know, for anybody listening who who hasn't, who's not aware of this, the FIA has opened up this process for a new team for 2026. So this would be an 11th team joining the grid. And we kind of saw Michael Andretti make a bit of a meal of his public kind of bid by mm -hmm. jumping in, jumping on the side of the FIA president and kind of slagging off the teams and saying, hey, you know, you guys are just greedy. I think that if Pollock is looking at this from, you know, the point of view of if you want to get into Formula One, it's the, it's the F1 teams ultimately you have to bring around to the table. It's F1 you have to convince this is the right thing to do. At the moment, one of the things F1 is so committed to is diversity across the grid. You know, they've, they've just launched the F1 Academy. You know, they're pushing all kinds of initiatives at different teams to try and in, in, increase, not just not just find a female driver, but increase, you know, the amount of women that are working in the paddock at all kinds of levels of teams. So it's got a really interesting pitch there. And also... One thing that kind of went under the radar because that is the headline news is the 50-50 split. But it, he also talked about looking for funding from a Gulf state. And, you know, you can put two and two together and assume that's probably the Saudis. You know, they've, they've talked about wanting an F1 team. Um, <clears throat> so one of the one of the big questions about Andretti was what what's the funding like? What's the resource going to be like? So for Pollock to come in and say, we've got this this great idea that Formula One, you would expect would get behind. We've got clearly got funding. We've got somebody who hasn't been in Formula One for you know, in the recent past, but at least kind of understands the paddock, understands the politics, you know, has obviously stayed connected. I think there's a lot there to like. Um, and a lot of this is going to be played out in the public because obviously this bid takes place behind closed doors. We don't know exactly what that looks like at a minute level, but I think a huge part of it is going to be whichever bid the Formula One teams kind of like the sound of the most is going to have the most traction. And this one ticks a lot of the boxes that those teams want to see. And one of them is, does a team have... The funding does it have, you know, does it have the whole business plan in place to be successful? We don't know a lot about this team yet, you know, where it would be based, etc. But I think there's a lot there to like, and um, as an idea, it's great as well. I mean, whether whether you could do it, Craig Pollock did admit he said at the moment finding a female driver would be difficult. There's not a, there's mm -hmm. not many who are qualified in terms of the super license points to actually to get there. But who knows, five, ten years time, that might be different. So 
it's a really interesting bid. And of the ones we've heard about, it's definitely the one that's kind of, I think, turned turned the most heads and said, that's actually a really interesting idea. I hate to be crass, but do we envision a Saudi-backed team having a female driver on it? Would they be open to that idea? I think the Saudis uh, will be open to that idea. Because if you look at their messaging, uh, I think there's a big gap inside Arabia between messaging and reality. But if you look at their messaging around the Grand Prix, a lot of it is based on... Um, allowing w- women to work within uh, the Grand Prix Corporation they have there and, and kind of being a part of of, of the project uh, that they've put forward and they've put um, a lot of effort and investment into women's football and stuff like that. So they they are trying to uh, create this, at least this image of, of an inclusive society. So I think from that perspective, yes, very much so, um, that they'd want to do it. I think one of the big questions is um, when I was talking to... Uh, uh, the head of the Saudi Arabian Motorsport Federation in Saudi Arabia, and he was saying how if they do do a team, they'd like to have it in Saudi Arabia, and they'd like to bring in expertise from around the world in Saudi Arabia again to diversify their economy a bit, have a different industry other than uh, just oil, and kind of you know while it is connected to oil because it's motorsport, uh, again to have, to have some difference. But how many female engineers would would want to give up roles in Europe and move to Saudi Arabia? I think that is a huge question. And if they're looking for a genuine 50-50 split with a team based in Saudi, I think that is is a hard push at the moment when you consider where the expertise is that you'd need to create a, a Formula 1 team. I think it would be quite hard to do it anyway in, in Europe, but especially in Saudi Arabia and convincing people to go there uh, would, would be really tough. So um, I'm I'm a little bit sceptical about it. And it, you know, one thing we have to say across all of this is that every single new team that is coming into F1. Like said, Nate said, yes, they have to have funding and all the rest of it. They have to have a business plan, but they also have to prove that they're bringing something that is going to increase uh, the, the the value of, of Formula One to basically um, kind of justify why they're going to get a, sl- a slice of the revenues back in return. Um, I think the idea of a team that genuinely can build up female representation in the sport would be a very appealing thing to Formula One, uh, but it has to be realistic. And um, I just don't think we know enough about this project at the moment to know whether that is or not. Um, I just want to be clear because now I think I'm the one confused. 50-50 split. Does that mean a male driver and a female driver or does it mean straight down the middle they want 50% male employees and 50% female employees? I think it's both. I think it's both, both? from what, what, what okay. I was reading from Craig, Craig Pollock's comments um, around uh, they gave to CNN, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it sounds like they're looking for both. I mean, both. Okay. I, I think there's also uh, kind of aiming to do that and then, you know, realistically how long it will take to build up to get to that point or, um, or, or you know, what's possible, whether it whether your whole engineering staff is split that way or mm-hmm. you make up for it by having... Uh, you know, lots of women in, in different roles within the team, uh, and then you'll split that way. But I think the idea is, is yeah, to, to make it 50-50 and a hard push for that um, to kind of set themselves a challenge of doing it. But um, yeah, I think one thing from one and uh, one thing when you talk to female engineers in Formula One is that um, they're also there because they're very good at what they do. And that's the important thing as well. You know, Formula One is not a series where you, you can just employ people um, essentially because of their background, you have to employ people who know fully what they're doing, otherwise you're not going to be competitive. Um, and so I think then we look at the wider issues of why there aren't more female engineers, female members of, of the paddock. And uh, I think those have been addressed by a number of other initiatives at the moment, which are arguably more valuable than just focusing on on, on the end bit and, and basically looking to say that realistically in 10, 15 years, we've got a completely different uh, uh, landscape in, in engineering yeah, yeah. and in Formula One. There is nothing to do with the fact that one team has decided by policy they're having 50 percent 50 percent it's because we've invested enough in engineering at you know at school levels uh encouraging uh women to get involved and encourage women to pursue careers in motorsport um and see the value in that uh to 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 end up with a, a more diverse sport i think that's really the important thing uh going forward well done good speech <laughs> i feel there Oh, yeah. Good job, Lawrence. Okay, let's clip that and run that everywhere, shall we? But first, before we let you go, we got to obviously break down the Australian Grand Prix. 
Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. First and foremost, the FIA is no longer applying TD39, the aerodynamic oscillation metric to limit porpoising in F1 cars. Lawrence, please explain. Um, yeah, so I haven't actually done a lot of digging around this, but from what I understand is that um, that, that they're no longer measuring how much the car's porpoise, mainly because the cars aren't porpoising. There's nowhere near the issue that they had last year. And the main reason for that is that they changed um, the height of the uh, of the floor and, and you know, basically w- w- where the floor had to ride. Um, and they did that in the regulations o- over the winter. So they've come into this year. And in fact, none of the cars are really struggling with this. But the... Um, the way of measuring it, so the kind of the way of measuring the oscillation is still there. And if they feel that they need to be able to Go measure back. it again and potentially bring this technical directive back into force, they can do. So I think the big test of that will be Baku, which was the race where last year we had Lewis Hamilton struggling to get out of the car because his back was hurting so much. So um, if we get to a situation where it becomes dangerous again, all the reasons that we had this technical directive introduced in the first place, it will come back. But in the meantime, What's the point in monitoring something that's not really happening up and down the grid? Fair enough. Max Verstappen and Checo Perez are separated by a whopping one point after Max claimed the fastest lap at Jeddah. Uh, what should we be on the lookout, Nate, from Red Bull this weekend? Oh, I mean, how fast they disappear up the road, maybe. I uh. don't know. Um, I mean, I think that we've got we've we've had kind of a tiny glimpse of how things could play out at Red Bull in Saudi kind of, you know, with the back and forth over the fastest lap. And, mm-hmm. you know, is Checo happy? We had the great thing with Jos Verstappen, you know, that great that great gif, that great meme that, that came out from that. But I think ultimately what the season needs to see is Checo beating Max or fighting Max in a clean fight where Max hasn't started from 14th. And until we get that, it's it's quite difficult to jump on board this kind of, this hype train of, oh, it's Max v. Checo now because we've not got any evidence to suggest that that is something that, you know, that we can see. So if, if, if Checo can kind of come away from, you know, a really impressive win, um, you know, hit the ground running in Australia, a place where Red Bull, Red Bull have a crazy bad record here, actually. They've won, I think it's one race in like the last 13 years or something at Melbourne, which is crazy when you think about how many times they've come into a season with a competitive car. So, you know, a few things we could be on the lookout for, but ultimately I think it's going to be more of the same from previous weekends. Maybe a few teams are closer, but that car just looks so far ahead in every, every, known place we've been to so far why is that lawrence that they haven't performed well in melbourne and in australia i mean some of it as of late has been reliability i believe but why would you say that in general yes it's it's a good question jamie it's a very unusual track um it's uh you know it's it's basically upside down for one thing (laughs) maybe that's it maybe they just haven't designed a car to work in the southern hemisphere um but no, I, I, my understanding of physics is that shouldn't make a massive difference. Um, no, it's look, it's I, I think it's just a track where a lot of stuff happens. It's often at the start of the year, so you do have reliability issues. You have teams still trying to work out their cars. If we think back to this time last year and how dominant Ferrari looked, especially at this track, and then what happened later mm-hmm. in the year, it's clear that it can be a complete outlier in terms of performance. So um, you do get this uh, places. Monza is another one just because of the specific characteristics it requires from the car. Monaco is a very obvious one because it's unlike any other track on the calendar. So you do get these occasional tracks where teams just can't get it together. But, you know, I think it's, there's, you know, if you go back and you actually looked at every single race, there'd be bits of bad luck here. There'd be wrong setup decisions there, kind of stuff which 
it's not a fundamental thing that means that Red Bull can't win yeah. in Australia. It's just that they haven't quite got it right uh, completely every time they come in. You mentioned Ferrari. Between Mercedes and Ferrari, who do you guys believe, Nate? I'll start with you. Who do you believe will have the better weekend? It's a tough one, isn't it? Because I think I would back Mercedes at this point. I feel better about where they're at currently. Um, yeah, but it's a it's a really fascinating one because I think week to week that is a genuine question. Um, but I would I would just give it to Mercedes. Okay, then follow with George or Lewis has the better weekend. I think George. I'd say George. I think he's he's in such a good groove at the moment. Lewis seems to be struggling a bit more. Um, and yeah, Russell just seems really confident, doesn't he, with the car? He's, he's in a good place. Um, but I mean, I think when Lewis has everything together, you know, I think he probably still has the edge on on Russell. So a lot of it depends on how happy he feels with where the car's at. But I would, if I was putting money on it, I'd say Russell, I think. Lawrence, between Mercedes and Ferrari, how do you feel? Um, I, in theory, I think it's a track that should suit the Ferrari more. But when you consider uh, what we saw in Saudi Arabia and how much Ferrari struggled in the race, I wouldn't be at all surprised if, if that's turned on its head. Um, as I said earlier, we're learning about these cars all the time, as are the mm -hmm. teams. And it seems like Mercedes made a much bigger gain between Bahrain and Saudi Arabia than Ferrari did in terms of just understanding the car. Again, mainly on George's side of, of, of the garage, but I think uh, Lewis's side of the garage also understands where, where, where they made the mistakes. So, um, yeah, I feel like the momentum is certainly with Mercedes, but the actual track layout, uh, which is now it's a pretty high speed track, not least because these cars are so fast anyway, like, you know, corners that used to be considered low to medium speed are now often considered medium to high speed just because the cars have so much downforce. But also they changed the layout of this track last year and they added a lot more high speed corners. So I think that should suit the Ferrari. Um, and the guy I'm going to be looking out for is Leclerc. So he's going to have a huge points proof this weekend. Obviously, he um, retired from third place in Bahrain with uh, the issue that then led to the grid penalty in Saudi Arabia, which put him on the back foot from the very start. But he was uh, second fastest in qualifying. I know Max, you know, uh, didn't make Q3, but he was second fastest in qualifying and not too far off Perez. So I think he's got a real point to prove and uh, I could see him making up the podium. When it comes to Aston Martin, Nate, do we believe Alonso keeps his form and Stroll bounces back? Yeah, I definitely think Alonso keeps his form. I think he's. I think it's just a perfect combination there. That Aston's obviously very, very quick, and I think Alonso's getting the best out of it. And you know, maybe, maybe is you know dragging it into, maybe you know he's making it look even better than it than it has been. I do, I do think that's a great car. But you know, how much of it? If Alonso wasn't driving, would there be? And for Stroll, I've actually I've been super impressed with Stroll. Um, you know, he had obviously stepping in that first week with all the injuries he had was amazing. Mm -hmm. He had that great overtake on Science, I think it was in um, opening laps of of Jeddah. Um, so he just looks really happy. He looks he looks happier than we've ever seen him driving an F1 car. So I can see him being competitive again, for sure. Um, whether uh, depends what bounce back equates to with Stroll. But I think he seems good for, you know, to challenge for the top six at the moment every weekend, which, you know, is if you look at the cars he's had in his career, he's probably never, he's never come into weekends with that, with that certainty. So I can see him back yeah. up there. Really quickly, McLaren has made some big changes. They announced the departure of technical director James Key as part of a team restructure. So the leadership, I believe, is now in the technical department. It's going to be split between three people. Yep. Nate, what can you tell us about that? And will it prove to be the right decision moving forward? Because obviously we know McLaren is a team that's struggling right now. Yeah, really struggling. And um, I mean, this is probably, you know, if you were if you were to kind of pick who the first kind of high profile you know, sacking or departure would have been from a team uh, a couple of months ago, you'd have said James Key. You know, he was kind of noticeably absent from the McLaren launch. Obviously, they missed all those development targets over the winter. And as you say, they're massively struggling the first two races. It's interesting because McLaren have basically gone from having a committee approach, which they had kind of pre-2019, to a one-man or a, a, a technical department led by one man in James Key, and then back to a committee approach. So David Sanchez, who we mentioned last week, was, uh, I forget the exact title at Ferrari. He was head of vehicle performance. I think he's left. He'll be joining that three-headed committee uh, January 1st next year with uh, Peter Pedromu and Neil Holdley. Now, I don't know much about Holdley, but Pedromu's been there for quite a while. Um, and what's interesting is the, the the impression you get from speaking to people at McLaren is that this is this is a long time coming. You know, it seems like it's a knee-jerk reaction to this season. But actually, you know, a lot of this stuff was going on behind the scenes last season. I think that the departure of... Andrea Seidel to, to Sauber, which obviously is going to become the Audi project, I think actually weirdly has given Zach Brown a chance just to hit reset on the team. You know, he saw 
a chance to promote Andrea Stella, who'd been in a technical capacity before. And actually, sorry, this is going massively into the weeds of a few years ago, but the the, the, the cars that McLaren really did well with coming out of COVID, so you had the 2020 car and then the 21 car, which obviously won at Monza and mm-hmm. probably should have won in Sochi as well. You know, it was one poorly timed pit stop in the rain away from winning that race as well. Andrea Stella kind of kept the credit for those cars. You know, it was seen as cars that he'd worked on when he was part of that committee. And the James Key cars really were seen as 22 um, and then this year's car. And obviously McLaren have taken a huge step back last year and they've taken probably a bigger step back this year in terms of this point in the year right now. So I think this has been going on for a while. I think Brown made contact with um, David Sanchez late last year and looked, he, he thought if, if I can get Stella in place there, I think they're bringing in one more person to be the kind of conduit between Stella and those three eventually. Um, but now, I mean, McLaren after this, there's no more excuses left really for Zach Brown on that team because you know, mm-hmm. you've, you've changed the team boss again. You know, that was kind of forced on you because um, Seidel left. You've kind of reset the technical team. You've said, right, you know, James Key's out. These guys are in. You've got the wind tunnel coming online now. So it does feel like the last kind of roll of the dice. And really, if this doesn't work now, the questions are, well, clearly there's bigger problems at McLaren than who's building the car, who's not, you know. So interesting times at McLaren. And I think, you know, again, Aston kind of making that big step they made has really ramped up the pressure on a team like McLaren. It it was one thing I think we were all kind of questioning where they were at last year. But now in the context of what Aston's done, it's kind of even worse. So I think Zach Brown knows that as well. What was interesting was actually spoke to Zach Brown last week and he said that even last year they noticed how much of a step Aston had made. You know, Aston were kind of a bit anonymous in that midfield last year, but he said from the start of the year to the end, they were stunned at how much progress Aston had made, you know, relative to where they'd been at the start of the season. When they when Brown looked across at McLaren's car, he said, Well, we kind of started in a bad position, we recovered, but then we never improved from that point. So I think as soon as that happened, they realized change needs to happen. Yeah. Um, a shame for James Key because, you know, had a really good reputation coming to McLaren, but for whatever reason, just didn't work there for him. Mm. So be interesting to see if we see him end up anywhere else. But, um, but yeah, so, I mean, yeah, McLaren now committee approach for them. Andrea Stella leading it. I mean, it, 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 it is easy to lose track with McLaren. What's happening has been quite a lot of change, but hopefully if you're a McLaren fan, this is, this is the change that, you know, is the final one they need to make. Oscar Piastri though, in his hometown racing, mm in the Australian Grand Prix, which leads me to the best of the rest, which actually feels like a really mean um, category to ask you guys about, but alas, with the Red Bull where it's at. Best of the rest, who do you feel like is going to have a great performance over the weekend? Valtteri Botas, obviously. Lawrence, you mentioned at the top of the show, living it up in Australia. Could we see Oscar Piastri do something crazy, even though Nate just laid out a very ominous picture? <laughs> Yeah, I think if you look at um, his performance in qualifying in Saudi Arabia, there's there's stuff there. And in Saudi, they were massively unlucky and the mm-hmm. Gastri had front wing damage and that took out uh, Lando's uh, damaged part of his car as well. So, you know, there's enough performance there that they can be in and around the top 10, but they're up against Alpine who, um, you know, put in a good showing in Saudi Arabia. I think if you're going to pick uh, 10 cars to, to, to finish in the top 10, You've got the now big four, which is Aston Martin plus Ferrari, Mercedes and Red Bull. And then you've got Alpine probably uh, filling any point positions. But I'd back Bottas uh, this weekend. He won here in 2019 uh, dominantly, um, was really impressive. It kind of got to the point where everyone was like, wow, is this the year that Valtteri finally shines and and comes and challenges Lewis's Lewis's championship? He didn't, but but he was very quick. Yeah, I think that's as close as he got, I think, that year, if I remember rightly. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and uh yeah a, a bit of a bit of home well it's not home support but he he's almost made himself an australian he's spent a lot of uh winter here his uh his girlfriend as i mentioned earlier is, is australian and the australians love him and they love his mullet so i could see it i could see it coming together and him getting in the top 10 uh, and that will make it very hard for mclaren to uh to get into the points too he's beloved everywhere i think honestly at this point nate who do you yeah. foresee shining in the best of the rest category yeah, Bottas is a great shout. And yeah, if we're if we're talking about best of the rest in terms of points, I'm gonna back my man K Mag. Um, you know, look good in Saudi. And this is a circuit he actually I was looking at his record here, he's good. This is the place he got his only podium in Formula One. Um, but he's always really good. And I think that Haas is kind of it's a very up and down car, but 
yeah, I'm hoping he's in the mix as well. So should be a fun one. Melbourne always yeah. has Melbourne always just has, you know, a few drivers that for whatever reason are on it from the very beginning of the weekend. Okay, um, well, with that, I'm gonna get yeah. your picks. But first I'm gonna tell you where the standings are at. Nate is one oh and one. Lawrence is oh one and one. And I'm gonna get in on the action just two Grand Prix late, which is okay because I think honestly with my picks, <laughs> you'll, you'll I have caught us up in no time. Casey. Overpass <laughs> you too. Yes. So who started last time? I can't remember. Who wants to go first? It with was their me. Picks? I, I got the first pick last time. So I, I think Katie, if you're new to the game, I, I feel like you should go first. Um, That's hazing, but fine, fair. I'll <laughs> yeah. accept. I'm gonna because of all of the uh reasonings you laid out for the Ferrari to do well, I'm gonna go with Charles Leclerc. Lots to prove. Max Verstappen P2. Fernando Alonso P3. Nice. Feel good about it? Yeah. Well, let's see. Nate. So I think we might as well just we might as well just give Fernando Alonso third place every week. <laughs> we <do laughs> okay. I'm gonna give him th- well, I'll I'll go in, I'll go in the proper order. So I'm gonna say, yeah, I'm gonna say Max, Charles, Fernando. So okay. f- flipping your your first two around. Perfect. Um, but I think that's I think that's a pretty strong pick. Lawrence. Yeah, so variation on theme, but I'm bringing Perez in. So I'm going to go Max to win, Sergio Perez second, and Leclerc third, because I talked up Ferrari earlier. I feel like I can't backtrack. <laughs> but I've yet to put Alonso on the podium and be proved wrong every time. So you can. Yeah, anyone listening to this must be like, what's Alonso yeah. done to Lawrence? What's, <laughs> what, what's with the hate? Yeah, I know. I, I feel bad about it because uh, I'm actually loving this storyline. It's fantastic seeing Alonso so competitive and Aston Martin up there. But um, I always feel like I just have to do something slightly different to Nate. So yeah, I've. I'll, yeah. I'll bring Perez in the podium and, and the clerk gets that third place. Because, yeah, like like you said, Katie's got something to prove this weekend. Well, there's one thing I saw that actually should make me and Katie think twice about where we put Alonso is that oh boy. every single driver that has ever surpassed 100, and, uh, 100 podiums and gone on beyond 101 podiums has the 101st time they've been on the podium, they've won the race. Alonso's 100th podium was obviously last the last race. So... I feel like you know if history repeats itself, I think it's six drivers. I can't remember off the top of my Seriously? head. Sh- yeah, yeah. I mean, it was going. It was on Reddit, so wow. I didn't verify it beyond <laughs> beyond the graphic looked great. But often, a lot of people on Reddit, you know, they're, they're pretty smart. So, um, but yeah, obviously, if that is if that is true, and Alonso wins this weekend, yeah, we'll um, be kicking or, ourselves. Yeah, or at the very least, it means next time Alonso's on the podium, he's on the top step. If history is to be believed, so um, pretty cool stat, which I completely ignored as I made my as I made my prediction. Well, we shall see. Lawrence, have an awesome time. Nate, enjoy your wedding. I appreciate you both as always. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like this video, leave us a comment, and don't forget to subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. And if you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcast. Cheers. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.